Well, I'd like to welcome you all to uh, Inside the Texas Ethics Commission, uh, which, uh, and, and I'd also like to thank you for coming here since it's the last session before the beer and wine start flowing. So we will do our best uh, to give you a lively send-off to the very, very fun part uh, of Saturday here at Texas Tribune Fest. Uh, first order of business, if you are going to tweet, and we would invite you to do so, make sure you use the hashtag TTF, as you see up there. Uh, I'm Dave Leventhal. I'm a senior political reporter for the Center for Public Integrity, a nonpartisan, nonprofit investigative news outlet in Washington, D.C., but I cut my political teeth uh, in Dallas, working for the Dallas Morning News for the balance of last decade. So quite familiar with the, uh, with the ethical uh, ebbs and flows of uh, Texas politicians and Texas politics. We have a very distinguished panel here today, and since we are talking about the te uh, Texas Ethics Commission, uh, who better to talk about it than three Texas Ethics Commissioners? We have uh, farthest to my left here, Jim Clancy, a uh, member of the commission. He was appointed to the commission in 2010, and he's uh, served previously as its chairperson. Uh, he's a president of the Corpus Christi business law firm, uh, Branscombe PC, where he focuses on corporate litigation. And uh, in a previous life, he received a Bronze Star Medal for his military service in Desert Storm, Operation Desert Storm, and as a proud graduate uh, of West Point. To his right, moving over, we have uh, Wilhelmina Delco, first appointed to the Ethics Commission in 2008, and then reappointed in 2011 by then Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst. Uh, previously, she served in the Texas House. She reminded me earlier before for 20 long years, uh, from 1974 to 1994, and was the first woman to be named uh, Speaker Pro Tem of the House. She uh, also served on the Board of Trustees for the Austin Independent School District and is a founder of Austin Community College. Finally, Hugh Aiken, first appointed to the Ethics Commission in 2012 by then Lieutenant uh, Governor David Dewhurst and currently serves as the Executive Director for the Hatton W. Sumner's Foundation, charitable foundation that encourages the study of self-government. And he also sits on the board of directors for the John G. Tower Center for Political Studies at Southern Methodist University outside of Dallas, or should I say inside of Dallas, Dallas. but not of Dallas. Yeah. Uh, he's also a veteran of the U.S. Army. And uh, just give a round of applause to our panelists for being here. So you've heard some of the criticisms, I'm sure, of the Texas Ethics Commission. You don't have enough power. You could be doing a lot more if you were empowered by the legislature with uh, certain powers above and beyond what you have right now, that you're too weak. And, uh, and I quote here, uh, quote, an enforcement agency cannot do its job if compliance is wholly voluntary. That was a quote from Mr. Clancy earlier this year to the Texas Tribune. My question, uh, let's start with you, Mr. Clancy, is, is the commission at this point just simply too weak to do its job that's been set forth to do? And if so, what would you do to change it? Uh, you should know that the commission has two functions. One is a policy function to pass rules and issue advisory opinions on specific scenarios. Um, the second function is it investigates sworn complaints. Every resident of Texas can fill out a form that says this official is doing something that's in violation of the election code, the government code, or the bribery statute, and we would like you to investigate. That is a significant right, and one that most states don't give its citizens. We then have a long process of a confidential investigation and hearing, and a public hearing before the case is disposed. The specific thing that I was complaining about in my letter is that unlike every other regulatory agency in the state of Texas, when we get to the end of the road, the Texas Commission, the Hex Ethics Commission, has its decisions not reviewed, but ignored by a district court in a brand new proceeding. The Latin word is called de novo. What it means is it's a do-over, but it's worse than a do-over the person that reviews the decision doesn't even know what the commission decided. And so it was part of the Sunset Bill in 2013 until it was amended by then Representative Van Taylor and voted out 
and that bill was later um, vetoed. And it was our number one objective in the 2015 session. Because we don't have any problem with someone reviewing our decision. We just want them to know what it was. <clears throat> Commissioner Delco, I, do, you, do you agree? And do you feel that there are problems right now uh, that could either be fixed or addressed either by the legislature, perhaps by the courts, that would make the Texas Ethics Commissioner uh, a healthier organization, a stronger organization? I'm sure there could be, but I think one of the problems with the Ethics Commission is that most people don't have a clue as to what it is or what it does. And so if you're doing something they agree with, they think you're wonderful. If they, you're doing something that they contest or don't agree with, then they don't see any reason why you should be there at all. And I think one of the big questions to me is, uh, I was saying earlier that uh, I was in office with both Watergate and Sharpstown. So I have no problem with people explaining what they're doing with public money or public responsibility. But a lot of people are very, very suspicious of what our motivation is because we don't get paid and we don't get any kind of positive publicity. But I think it's very important for the citizens of Texas to understand that there is an organization that objectively, and nobody has ever accused us, as far as I know, of being partisan. We are equally horrible to both sides. <laughs> so I don't think there's any question about the objectivity, but they're just concerned about what we really can do. And so to try to answer your question, I think we need to have more specific uh, responsibility instead of doing something, making a decision that goes to somebody else that can either reinterpret it or ignore it. And very quickly before we get to Commissioner Aiken, what is your motivation for serving on the commission, particularly after a long and storied career in politics? Uh, it, it, this, is, this is something new for you. Why, why are you serving? I don't know. I think, that <laughs> <laughs> I think that it was somebody that I'd work with that's punishing me for, for having been in public office, but I really do think it's important for citizens who are not holding public office any longer, but that have been there and seen what the reality of the process is to be there. And I hope I have a certain amount of credibility and even a reputation for being honest. I hope that's out there. And in that case, people are, are comfortable. The other thing is that the, one of the reasons I like being on that this commission is I cannot endorse candidates. And that's a benefit because whenever there's an election, I have two or three people that were my best friends or they, I helped raise them or some such, and therefore they're entitled to have me as a resource or sponsor. And I can't do that if I'm on the Ethics Commission. So that's the one positive thing. And I also think that if we didn't exist, we would have to be created. It is important for the state to have an objective group of people looking at some of the concerns of citizens and feeling comfortable that when we make a decision, we're making it fairly objectively. And Commissioner Aiken, do you agree with, with the premise, first of all, that, that the commission could be more powerful? And, and if so, what would be on your wish list for, for making it a more powerful commission? I completely agree with, with Jim Clancy's point about uh, the trial de novo appeal process. Mm -hmm. that, that is a, a, a glaring weakness, and only the legislature can fix that. But I have two other more immediate concerns. Uh, the first one is, can the lobby law be enforced? And that's going to be a judicial decision, and it's at the Fort Worth Court of Appeals right now. And then, can the commission actually do discovery in the sworn complaint process and have its uh, subpoenas enforced by the courts. That again is in the court system right now. And to seize on that issue just for a second, if you, you get sufficient subpoena power, what does that mean in, in plain spoken terms for the process? What that means is, among other things, that we'll be able to get the data we need to evaluate the case before us, number one. Number two, it'll speed the process up. Uh, anybody who reads the political press today knows how long some things have drug out and a lot of uh, that delay is caused by our inability to properly do discovery. 
we'll get back to lobbying uh, a little bit later, but oftentimes when you, from state to state or even at the federal level, when we talk about ethics <coughs> commissions or we talk about election commissions, it's often dealing with a, a lot of Byzantine issues, I think, for the general public. One thing that everyone in the general public who follows politics at any level does know about, though, is the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission decision back in 2010, which to a very strong degree uh, changed the way that politics were waged during campaigns and during elections. A lot is written and a lot is talked about at the federal level about that case, but talk a little bit, uh, if you will, and, and let's start with you, Commissioner uh, Aiken, uh, about how that decision, which the Cliff Notes version is uh, effectively uh, allows corporations or nonprofits, other types of entities to raise and spend unlimited amounts of money, give donations directly to candidates if they will and other outside groups, gave rise to super PACs. How has this affected your work on the Texas Ethics Commission and more broadly politics and campaigns in Texas? <laughs> Everybody in this room uh, knows uh, the issues we've been grappling with here. Uh, Citizens United said certain things about expenditures by corporations and labor unions. And in the uh, political theater surrounding what the Ethics Commission is trying to do to enforce Texas law, uh, what gets lost in the process is that no one talks about everything that the court said because in uh, Citizens United previously in Buckley uh, in subsequent cases that uh, have uh, been rendered in by the first and second uh, circuit courts of appeal uh, and uh, they have sustained the constitutional validity of disclosure uh, we hear people say all the time, we're a 501c4, we're tax exempt, we do not have to disclose our donors to the Internal Revenue Service. That's fine. Their 501c4 tax status is effectively irrelevant as far as Texas law is concerned. The question is whether they're a political committee and engage, become a political committee through the amount of spending they do. And, and this is also speaking somewhat to the issue commonly known as dark money. Correct. And dark money being money that's given to a nonprofit organization that in turn does engage in politics but is not disclosing the root source of the funds being used to engage in, in the political process in an election sphere. Would that be a fair uh, definition? Absolutely yeah. fair. And in Texas, and, and Jim can, can talk more eloquently about this than I can, and I think it was probably the first thing I heard him say when I joined the commission uh, at a uh, public meeting, and he talked about how we have no contribution or spending limits here. Texas, uh, it might be more appropriate to call the Texas Ethics Commission the Texas Disclosure Commission, because that is the only vehicle we have to provide the public with the information that they need to make informed decisions when they go to the ballot box. In fact, Commissioner Clancy, uh, I, I believe you said uh, uh, earlier this year that disclosure is the only protection that the public has. What did you mean by that, and how does that interface with, with the notion of dark money, which is an issue that the Commission just this month has, has grappled with again, uh, and the broader issue of, of making sure that, that the public uh, has transparent information uh, about the way that campaigns are being waged. Uh, let me start with the basics. Free speech is free. Paid speech has some regulations to it. Okay? Anyone can say anything, email anybody, call anybody on the phone, tell them what they want to say, and we have nothing to do with it. Okay? But for many, many years, there's been a concern that a person who contributes to a candidate and how the candidate spends its money has a valuable public interest. There's all sorts of speech that's even paid that is not regulated by us. If you contribute $50 or less, no regulation. If you're a PAC 
that spends or collects less than $3,000, no regulation. Okay. If you're a candidate that spends less than $500, no regulation. But once you rise to a level that the legislature has determined, the public has a right to know who is contributing to your candidacy and how you spend your money, well, then you fall into uh, our regulatory scheme. Candidates do it and PACs do it. What's a PAC? A group of people. A group of people that uh, raises money and spends it for a political purpose. The whole thing that has come up about with the dark money issue is that there are groups of people who want to raise money and permissibly spend it, but not disclose their donors. Now, the reason they don't want to disclose their donors is, you know, is not an illegitimate one. There is some problems when you hear about your, you know, where you've made your money. Everybody's familiar with the, uh, the Mozilla, you know, Firefox CEO that lost his job because he made a contribution to Prop 208 and was disclosed, right? Um, and, and there is a concern that, you know, your employers and your people who are interviewing, can you go look up your donation records on our database and know right away who you've donated to? And so there are groups that are concerned that their donors are going to be disclosed. And the question is, are they political or are they not political? And the example that I like to use, the simplest example, is you have a group. Um, they're in favor of saving the whales, right? And so they find out people that want to save whales. And they buy a mailing list. And they tell everybody, save the whales, save the whales. And then they come out later and they do a fundraiser for saving the whales. Because they're going to save the whales and saving the whales is very important. And then finally, they have legislative priorities for the next session involving saving the whales. And then the very last thing they do, 30 days before the election, is they send out a mail out or a Google Click ad or television advertising that says, candidate Jim Clancy wants to save the whales. Okay? And the question is, is that group really in the saving the whale business? Or are they in the business of getting Jim Clancy elected? And so that's the distinction in dark money. At the federal level, it is a huge problem. Why is it a huge problem? Because at the federal level, you have caps. You have caps on federal campaigns. And there is a good reason why you want to give to save the whales instead of Congressman so-and-so, because you can write a check for $25,000 and not $2,300. In Texas, the only reason why you want to give to save the whales until, until candidate Jim Clancy is because you can do it in secret if they're not a PAC. Now, uh, Commissioner Delco, some people have suggested that the 30-day period uh, in, in the commission's decision about the 30-day period that Commissioner Clancy had just described exceeds the boundaries of the commission's authority, that it, that it doesn't properly represent the the, the philosophy of the legislature or the, or the law that was passed. Do you agree with that? Uh, or, or is that that's something that, as far as you're concerned, is just simply off the mark? Well, I think that the philosophy of the legislature is determined every session. That there is no consistent history of saying, we're going to do this in spite of this, or this is something that the law requires us to do. Therefore, the flexibility is where all the PACs come in people who come in to influence or interpret for you or reward you in a real sense for making decision X instead of decision Y. So I think one of the problems the Ethics Commission has is sometimes the interpretation of what the intent of the legislature is. And that's why I'm glad we're surrounded by lawyers. I am not a lawyer. And so some of the double talk just goes right on over my head, and I don't even try to do it. But I think it's very important for the public to have some comfort in what the PACs are doing and what the dark money is for. That's where the whole issue came from. I honestly believe that the public has the right to know. So, well, to take, talking about history, take that back to the, to the beginning. Uh, a case could be made, and some conservative and libertarians uh, have made this very case that anonymous speech is 
central to us as a, a people, as us as a country, uh, that pamphlets made by anonymous people at the beginning of our nation uh, were essential to being able to distribute political speech, that papers that were written by authors who we never knew have become seminal works in the country. How does, how does that work in, in modern day? Is, is that just an illegitimate argument as far as you're concerned uh, when it comes to the current day anonymous speech dark money issue? I think you have to talk to the lawyers. <laughs> to me, it's dishonest. But, but you don't have to be a lawyer necessarily to, to have a feeling about it. Uh, well, you how, can how have you a all feeling feel about, about it? it, but I Could think you? it's more than just having a feeling. My sense is that you have to be able to do something about it. And I think that these people hire whole staffs of attorneys for the sole purpose of making one word make a whole difference in the interpretation of an issue. And that's why we have to have lawyers on the Ethics Commission because they can either interpret the word or create another word that counters that word. It's fascinating to watch. <laughs> Dave, I'm all in favor of, favor of anonymous contributions if nobody knows who made the contribution. If nobody knows who made the contribution, then the candidate's not beholden to anybody. Don't you understand that's the problem? It's not the protection, it's the access. Okay? If you all make a contribution for $18.36, you're going to get a little feel-good and the guarantee that you're now on the mailing list. If you make a contribution for $250, you're going to get an invitation to the next fundraiser in your local area. But there's a number that's higher than that that gets you that person's cell phone, that gets you that candidate's meeting in person about the issue that matters to you. And the question that I have is, isn't that what every citizen who voted for that candidate wants? Why should that contribution be the price to access? In Texas, it's legal. Disclose it. I know you're champing at the bit to, to weigh in here, but is there some sort of corrosive effect when you have anonymous contributions, particularly at a high level to an organization uh, that uh, just simply has a lot of power to perhaps change people's mind or, or communicate a message at the very least? I certainly believe so. I am, uh, and this isn't uh, an, uh, an attitude I've developed since I've been on the Ethics Commission, but I have always been a disclosure person. Uh, I don't care if the Koch brothers and George Soros pour $500 million each into the, uh, an election and spread it all over all sorts of candidates. What is important is that the public knows which candidates got their money and which wow. candidates uh, may be influenced by that amount of money. Uh, if you don't know who's funding these people in this political world, uh, I don't believe you can make an informed decision when you go to the ballot box. So if we were having this conversation in Washington, D.C., people might be looking at you like you have three heads because Democrats and Republicans just simply cannot agree, Let at me least talk even about in that. principle, on that issue. So why, why are things different in Texas, number one, and is it to the issue that, that you've brought up, uh, which is that there are no contribution limits? People can spend as much as they want to. When, Entities can take you know, in as much as they want to. Very different from the federal level where there are strict donation limits in place mm -hmm. for, for hard money going at least directly to candidates. Uh, when we talked on the phone mm -hmm. the other day, uh, you asked me, uh, you know, how do we work so well together as opposed to the Federal Election Commission that gets tied up in partisan knots every time? And I think everybody knows the structure. There are eight of us on the commission. By law, four Republicans, four Democrats. And to do anything serious, it takes six votes. Uh, so going on a partisan crusade is pretty difficult. Uh, but in almost four years I've been on the com uh, commission, even without that fact of life, the issue of Republican versus Democrat has never come up. We don't operate that way. Uh, sometimes, quite frankly, I have to sit and think going, is 
Tom Harrison, one of the commissioners, is, is he a Republican or Democrat appointee? I can't remember. Yeah, but you don't have that problem with me. <laughs> no, I don't, Wilhelmina. Because, <laughs> see, I get to be the only twofer on the commission. I'm the only woman and the only minority, so there's absolutely no question about me being by myself. That's I think. correct. <laughs> but I can take credit for a whole lot of constituencies. That's a good thing. Could I go back to one issue and the one of, of Citizens United? Well, uh, because we'll get to, to that. Me, yeah, uh, yeah. Go, okay, go ahead. To, we'll, to we'll get me, to that. The one, one more thing definition. that I had yeah. hoped would come out on that is it has turned out to be a huge impediment to minorities and women and poorer people being able to run because they cannot compete with the ability of this, these huge corporations to make contributions that impact the elections. And so the ability of communities to be represented by small communities is less. The whole dark money, the whole, all of that is to me has uh, come up out of this whole Citizens United discussion that now it is legal for a huge corporation to contribute money. Well, Commissioner Clancy, Commissioner Aiken, uh, of course, the Citizens United decision was a federal decision, but it yes. affects every state of course. in the union, every state government. Uh, was this a bad decision? Was this something that needs to be changed going forward or that the federal government is going to have to, in your opinion, uh, address in a different way than during the past five odd years since the decision came down? Uh, at great risk, I will, I uh, was not very pleased with the decision uh, personally and I think there are unintended consequences that we're seeing now with the whole dark money issue that was not really central to that case. Uh, and like at the risk of offending people, and I can't remember who said it the first time, but I'll believe a corporation or a labor union is a person when Texas executes one. That's right. Commissioner Clancy. Uh, you need to understand the principle of Citizens United, and that is uh, money is speech. Money is speech. And in our country, corporations, other groups, have rights just like people do. And one of those rights is under the First Amendment. So as long as they're going to operate under the construction that money is speech, then restrictions on the spending of money on using your speech are going to be subject to strict scrutiny. Um, I think the only thing I learned out of my con law class was that if it was strict scrutiny, it meant it failed. <laughs> the, other st the other standard was much more relaxed. And so the question is, what standards will hold? Now, 2,300, that's held. 25,000 across all the races, that hasn't held. You know, we've had some of our own rules that have been challenged, both for being facially unconstitutional or being applied as being unconstitutional. And we've had to get smarter about that. But if they're going to believe that money is speech, then it's, you have to have a really good reason for preventing it. That is different from disclosing it. So good decision, bad decision? I think they determined that money was speech and that's how they had to decide it. I think, um, I think there are enormous unintended consequences that uh, have made this a very complex problem for us to deal with. One more DC focused question then we'll, we'll bring things squarely back to Texas. Uh, your colleagues on the Federal Election Commission, uh, a body that I deal with a lot, um, not only are they philosophically, there, there's a canyon in between them philosophically, but there's also a lot of personal animosity uh, among the commissioners as well. Uh, I know you're not there in DC, but I'm sure you read about them uh, at least from time to time and uh, are familiar with some of the actions that they're taking or lack thereof. What would be advice that you would have to the commissioners? Because again, as we talked about a moment ago, you guys seem to, at the very least, get along and have some common understanding of of the law in a way that the FEC has struggled with at times. You have to decide on what your, what your collective goals are. You know, we want to have a simple filing system. 
We want to have a filing system that is easy to comply with. And we also want a filing system that gives the public what they need to know. All eight of us, regardless of where we came from, can work towards those goals. And in our rules and in the decisions we make, we get there. The problem that the federal agency has is they want to talk about whether this specific decision at this very moment is right or wrong. And it's a 3-3 all the time because they're coming from their positions and not what the goals of their agency should be. Can't we agree it should be simple? Can't we agree it should be easy to comply with? Can't we agree it should tell you what you need to know? Why can't they do that? Commissioner Aiken. Politics does not drive what the Ethics Commission does. I think politics does drive what the FEC does. And so long as it does, you're going to be stuck with 3-3 decisions forever. How do, we, how do we fix Washington, Commissioner? Ha! <laughs> Can we just get a boat and put them all out to sea? That's the only thing I know to do. But I think one of the serious questions is that we try to discuss is the validity of access and accountability. And I don't think that crosses party lines or any of those lines. And my concern is that we ought to make it easy for everybody to feel comfortable running. Some of the laws you say, well, it's too expensive or it's too complicated. And therefore, people from my community or my ethnicity or my financial status cannot run. I think one of our responsibilities is to let people know this is an open process and that the accountability is equal across. And that's why there's such a discussion on the dark money that people aren't comfortable with what they see on the surface and they're trying to implicate us in that and we're not in that. To me, our issue has to be accountability, affordability, and access to the, to the political system. And is there anything specifically going forward that you would like to see done in order to, uh, to undergird the points that you've just made about accessibility, transparency, and disclosure? Either at the commission or, or the, the legislative level. I'm not sure that I can think of anything specifically because it's pretty general. What works in one area doesn't work in another area. And I think one of the concerns that I have is that when people get ready to run for office, there's some way for them to be informed about all the things they have to account for, especially in terms of the Ethics Commission. And so we try to get out and have workshops and conferences and, and our reporting system and our staff and all those people accessible because I want to encourage people to run for public office, not discourage them. When you get to talking about big finance and all of this, these big complicated issues, it's discouraging to somebody who just wants to get up there and tell the city council you need to do a better job of paving my street or you want to tell the legislature you're ignoring my whole area and please one of these days get somebody accountable for redistricting so all of us have an equal voice in representation. Commissioner Aiken, as it stands right now, does the Ethics Commission have an effective uh, disclosure regime for, for that which must be disclosed? We're not necessarily talking about dark money, which uh, is, is not necessarily disclosed. Uh, what's good, if you go to the Texas Ethics Commission's website uh, as just a general member of the public, what would you like to see improved? what everyone will be able to see soon, thanks to the $3 million given us by the legislature, is a new electronic filing system that is going to minimize errors that are made, innocent errors that are made by filers all the time. Uh, think of TurboTax and how it, doesn't, it tries to keep you from doing stupid things. That is the, the goal of this system, so it makes compliance easier it increases accuracy. Uh, we see people all the time who have huge problems dealing with the regulatory scheme created by the legislature. And the commission works very hard to honor its mandate from the legislature to increase participation, decrease costs. We're partially about getting people into the process. 
and this new system is going to help in some cases and people that you know who wouldn't want to sit sit down and try and deal with all of the campaign finance filing forms you have to do in your race for state representative it's going to be a lot easier for them to do it in the next election cycle because of this simple system well commissioner clancy offline we were talking about the uh some i guess you could call them uh, exotic types of uh, arrangements, financial arrangements that campaigns have with contractors. And uh, one of them uh, <laughs> like to call uh, a campaign in a box where a campaign will go out, they will hire a consultant, they'll write a check for a certain dollar amount, and that consultant goes off and does, well, who knows what. It might be television ads, it might be grassroots work, uh, it could be anything. But the public doesn't get to see exactly what's going on because Apparently, there's uh, no reason for them to itemize all the different things that, that's uh, going on within that campaign. Uh, bottom line, should that change? And is that something that you are going to look at uh, or something like it to, to amend going forward, to change going forward? It's something we're looking at. It's a, it's a problem. Um, it's not easy to fix it with the legislation that we currently have. We're trying to figure out how to make it simple, fair, and disclose what needs to be disclosed. Well, the, the legislature, if I'm correct, uh, had about two dozen ethics-related uh, or disclosure-related bills that ultimately were not passed uh, in the last session. And please correct me if, if my math there is wrong. But the point being is, is that there were lots of attempts to give you more ability to do your job uh, or otherwise uh, address issues that are under the commission's purview. What would you like to see going forward into 2016, 2017, and beyond uh, in terms of things that you don't have right now that the legislature could give you, or for that matter, if you want to take it another step, the courts uh, in, in areas where they may be weighing in on subjects that are going to directly affect you. Every year we pass that, or we recommend statutory recommendations, and uh, every year they're ignored. Um, I will say, you know, we have had some success. We now have an auditor for the first time in 23 years. We also have an investigator for the first time in 23 years, and that's pretty good. Uh, we're going to use that. You know, I, I think it's a hard situation. You know, everybody wants to, to knock the legislature for, being, for not wanting these, these ethical rules. You know what they don't want? They don't want their opponents in the next election to have a bunch of stuff that they didn't file right coming at them. You know? I think my biggest fear about the future is that we're going to end up with an ice box, you know, uh, 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 that cold water challenge you know, that everybody had poured on her head and spread like a virus everywhere. Because there are groups of undisclosed, hidden, that will be able to drive the results of elections in a 21st century way. You know, we're still worried about direct mail and TV advertising. Shoot, most of the people in this room don't get their mail and they don't watch TV. <laughs> you know? Uh, and that's going to get worse all the time. And, and so how to deal with that in the future is a real challenge. It could be very easy for the legislature to just say, look, if you spend $25,000 in a campaign, you got to disclose who your contributors are. Very easy. Or if you don't want that, then don't make anybody do it. But let's have the debate. Let's have the academic debate about whether or not the sources of funding campaigns should be disclosed or not. Don't try to hide behind the interpretation of the rules that we can only, we, we can't make rules that change what statutes say. We can only s interpret the meaning of what the legislature has passed. And I think we do a pretty good job with that. Mm -hmm. So we have about 20 minutes left. I want to give everyone an opportunity for Q&A. We'll do that in a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to turn to the issue of lobbying. There's been a major issue that has been in your laps. It deals with Michael Quinn Sullivan, uh, a lobbyist for an organization uh, that, that has been, uh, you know, in your opinion, doing lobbying work. You find him $10,000, and uh, right now this is a matter in the courts. Uh, Commissioner Aiken, talk a little bit about uh, this case and uh, why ultimately you think uh, he's either going to have to pay up uh, or not have to pay up. 
Well, first of all, this case is uh, the Fort Worth Appeals Court. Uh, depending upon what happens with it, uh, if uh, they lose and the case is remanded back, comes to uh, Travis County, I totally expect an appeal to the state Supreme Court, which kicks the can down the road a little bit. Uh, the, if they prevail in this case, my personal belief is that the uh, Lobby Registration Act is effectively dead in Texas. So that's a real threat, in your opinion? In my opinion, it is. And, uh, and then we, what would happen? Then we, you have the potential to go back to the days of, uh, some of you are too young, but uh, you remember when Bo Pilgrim was in the Senate <laughs> writing checks for $10,000 and passing them out to individual senators. The one thing you can say positive for, for Bo was that he wasn't hiding what he was doing. Uh, you know, what is lobbying? If you are paid to go talk to State Representative Clancy and say, if you vote this way on this bill, I'm going to give you an up check and I'm going to broadcast it all over the state and tell all of the people who read my stuff that you're great and should be reelected. But if you don't vote that way, I'm going to give you a down check. And you're not going to get endorsed by me. And my people are going to contribute to your opponents uh, in the next primary campaign. That's lobbying. Now, putting out a scorecard and just throwing it out there, I don't much like scorecards. Uh, but I don't consider that lobbying. But when you do that personal one-on-one -on -one communication, I will grade you this way or grade you that way. I will reward you or I will punish you. And I'm being paid to tell you this. It's lobbying. Uh, Commissioner Clancy, I, I know in, as part of this, uh, there, there's been talk about, well, what actually is a lobbyist? Uh, how do we <clears throat> define what a lobbyist is? If a political columnist who has an opinion, who wants you to vote a certain way as a member of the legislature uh, on, a, on a particular issue or bill comes along and is haranguing members of the legislature left and right to, to go and support this or that, or at the very least communicating his or her opinion uh, to the legislature, could, could it be made, could the case be made that that person is a lobbyist, even though that person in his or her mind would say, no, 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 I'm I'm a journalist, I'm a member of the media. Where do you draw the line? Or is this a gray area that just isn't quite worked out yet? It's not gray in Texas. If you're paid and you directly communicate with someone to say vote for or against this, and that's what you're, you are a lobbyist. However, there are exceptions. One of those exceptions is if it's a below a certain percentage of your work. If you run the Chamber of Commerce and you come up to the legislature on Corpus Christi Day and you knock on the door of your legislature and say, please vote for this bill, we need an expansion of the Texas Aquarium, okay? You're not a lobbyist. Are you paid? Yes. Did you say vote for a bill? Yes. But you're below a threshold, okay? The other exception we have is for the media. But as it's currently defined, the media exception only applies if you have a circulation and people buy your magazine. That's what it does. So you can publish all the ads you want in these general circulation, and you can have everybody come to your website. But if you start getting paid to directly communicate with legislatures, dear Representative Clancy, right? Then you've got to be part, or the only way the media exception applies is if you have a circulation that you pay for. Let me just say about the, the Michael Quinn Sullivan lobby case, because I had the privilege of presiding over that. Mr. Sullivan had every opportunity to testify and provide the commission with evidence that he fell under one of those two exceptions. And he refused. And he refused because the objective of his group is to end disclosure in Texas, to end disclosure of direct expenditure energies, and to end the requirement for lobbyists like him to register. And, and we're going to fight that. A question to all three panelists. Uh, should registered lobbyists in the state of Texas also, and this is not done right now to my understanding, 
also have to notify publicly or disclose publicly who they meet with or meetings that they have with elected officials or members uh, of the legislature? We did a study in two years ago, and it determined that lobbyists report a lot of stuff, okay? Of all the food and entertainment that they report, only 5% of it is directly linked to a specific member of the legislature. 5%, okay? We allow lobbyists to give their members of the legislature $250 gifts. I can't give my legislator $250 gift as a constituent. So that is a real problem, and it's one that we should fix with something like the wine and dine bill or, and preventing ticket splitting. So would, would you support or, or not support the notion of, of having, similar to what uh, foreign lobbyists will, will have to do at the That's what level? it was required to, that was what it was intended to do. Mm -hmm. They're just carved out a couple of exceptions that said, well, if you had enough credit cards on the bill so that it was below the $100 threshold, then you didn't have to report it. And then lawmakers understandably said, I don't want to know anybody to know that I'm meeting with lobbyists, so they wouldn't go if there wasn't going to be some way for it not to be disclosed. Commissioner Delco, Commissioner Aiken, would you like to see lobbyists and lawmakers disclose uh, their meetings? I think it's, if you're talking about putting every lobbyist calendar online, uh, no. Uh, it's about money in my mind. That's, that's the one thing that you can quantify in, and uh, asking to publish the calendar is, <clears throat> seems to be, to me, to be a little bit of an overreach. Commissioner Tucker? I don't have any problem with lobbyists reporting money. I think that, uh, for example, when I was in the legislature and I'd go to one of the restaurants close by, and when I got ready to leave, the waitress would tell me, uh, your bill has already been paid. I don't have any problem with that as long as I don't know who it was that paid it. And somebody might have just thought, you know, I looked nice that day and this was a nice tribute to me looking nice, for all I know. <laughs> I think that when there's a specific issue involved and it can be clearly determined that the reason Joe Blow came up to me and gave me a check is that I understood that in return for that check, I was supposed supposed to vote yes or no on his particular issue. I think that's the public's understanding of lobbying, that you're actually paying somebody uh, in one form of currency or another to make a specific decision that's going to impact you. And I think that ought to be reported. I ought to know that this person is getting all this money from this particular group, and if they stick with this group, then they get rewarded by this group. And you look all the time, I remember when I was in the legislature, there were people who were voting because that was the way labor wanted them to vote, or that's the way environmentalists wanted them to vote. So as long as you can tie it into something like that, I think the public has a right to know. And if my legislator, the person I voted for, is doing something that I disagreed with, my prerogative is next time not to vote for them or to get out there and get somebody else to run against them. But I think the public has a right to know if some outside force is influencing the public decisions that you make. Well, let's get to audience questions. Do we have a microphone? Or we have a microphone right there? Great. Uh, I would just simply ask, we got about 10 minutes left. Uh, please keep your questions succinct, respectful, no sermons, <laughs> just questions. And please feel free to line up at either of the mics. Yeah. Where's the line here? <laughs> uh, I'm Cindy Weatherby, and I guess I'm here today probably representing the League of Women Voters in this question. First of all, I want to thank each and every one of you for serving on this commission. Uh, I know it's a pretty thankless task, and uh, we really appreciate your service. And Ms. Delco, you're not just a twofer, you're a one-of-a-kind leader that we are so pri privileged to have serving our region and our state. My question is, to achieve some of these changes that you'd like to have made, what can we as individuals or organizations do to provide you assistance? 
uh, you need to come up with a League of Women Voters ethical standards. And those ethical standards have to have a list of things that a significant minority of the members of the legislature will agree to. You know, one, uh, I will not meet with a lobbyist without disclosing it. Two, I will not accept gifts from lobbyists. Three, I will disclose all the sources of contributions to my campaign, whether they be direct or through another entity. Four, I'll disclose my business interests and any governmental contracts that I'm involved with. And then make that group sign that pledge, the League of Women Voters Ethical Office Holder Pledge, and allow the good members of government to sign on for being more accountable than the law requires. And let them shine the light on the people that want to hide behind those gaps that we have in the law. I was a very active member at one time of the League of Women Voters, and I highly respect what they do. And I think it's very important for an objective group to translate to the general public what some of the issues are because some of them are camouflaged and you really don't realize what you've supported or what you have been put down for supporting when you really didn't understand what the issue was. So when we have groups like the League that follow campaigns and not only follow campaigns but issue recommendations, that's lobbying. But the reality is it is based on a commitment that is clearly defined and you have presented the issue to a diversity of people, and it's up to them to respond, and you report their response. I think that's important, because a lot of people go to vote, and they know they want to vote for Joe Blow. There are 45 other names on that ballot, and they don't have a clue as to who anybody else is, and they're just voting, and very often, groups like the League help people understand that this is the issue, and this person is for it, and this person is against it then you have the ability to decide whether based on that information you're for it or against it. So information is important from a respected source. So I have no problem with lobbyists. I just want to know that I don't want them to be before the issue today and against it tomorrow. Commissioner Aiken, before you weigh in, if you do have a question, just line up at the mic right now. Uh, we got about six, seven minutes left. Please don't be shy. Ian. It, it, it goes beyond just what the League of Women Voters can do. Uh, it's all about everyone's civic responsibility to pay attention, to not be swayed by unreasonable political drama that is often not based on the truth, uh, but maybe the most important thing everyone can do whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, is participate. And I mean participate in the primary, but even more importantly, participate in the runoff primary. Uh, you look at the statistics on primary participation in Texas, of course, has gotten to the point where, at least in the Republican Party, the primary is the action. And in certain parts of the state, it's that's the election for the Democrat Party as well. And the drop-off between the first primary and the runoff is so dramatic. Someone thinks, I won this election in this runoff. Well, you won it with such a small minority of the eligible voters uh, that it is, the voters are doing a disservice the ones who don't vote are doing a disservice to the rest of the state. And I don't know how you get people to go to the polls and make informed decisions, but that's something we have to figure out how to do. Uh, in our own way with the, the rules we have uh, and the way we enforce them, we try and make things as simple uh, and as compassionate as the law will allow us to do, the tools that the legislature has given us to work with. Uh, 
but it's no one group, despite the quality of the work you do, no one group is going to solve this. Uh, people need to look out for the larger interests of the state as opposed to being one-issue voters. And you start breaking those log jams and then you can start making some progress. Ma'am, just please identify yourself and ask your question away. Um, I'm a citizen of Texas and I just wanted to ask, I just glanced at your website and it says that you also have duties under the Texas Constitution that you can recommend the salary of the Lieutenant Governor, Speaker of the House, Legislature, how often do you do, how often do, you do that or when was the last time you do that? We do it every two years and it's still $6,000. Well. <laughs> you never change that. That's right. Doesn't change anything, believe me. <laughs> Any other questions? Commissioner Clancy, uh, if you want to take an opportunity to show a couple of slides to underscore point. Uh, uh, I, I just want to give you all a little, uh, a little lesson in one of the issues we go to, and it's the last two slides. Uh, do the second one from the last. We also have the privilege of commissioners of now getting sued on a regular basis um, for uh, violating uh, constitutional rights of others. And one of the ways we try to solve those problems is to the extent that something is constitutionally unclear, we try to make it clear. And then it's always not necessarily clear whether or not, um, when it gets reported, what in fact we've done. Okay? Uh, we were sued by a very uh, important group known as the Lake Travis Citizens Council. Anybody heard of it before? No, we haven't heard about it before either. Uh, it was formed to buy five Facebook ads uh, and then sue us for violating their constitutional rights by saying that we, our definition of political advertising was unclear in our state statutes. So we passed a rule. And I will recommend to you, the best description ever of this was found back in that Aaron Sorkin series called West Wing, when the chief of staff and his assistant were trying to understand the difference between hard money and soft money. And back in those regimes, before McCain-Feinkold, in order to use hard money, you could only use hard money when you had magic words. That's the objective standard that they tried to do. So they would say, vote for, vote against, elect, don't elect, but you could have a picture of the candidate, you could have the ominous Darth Vader music, you could have, you know, stop such and such from destroying whales, and as long as you didn't use magic words, then that could be paid for with soft money. Okay. Well, they challenged that, that statute that we have now, and so I wanted to show you the four, the four ads. Go to the first one. Lake Travis Citizens Council, your opinion matters. Take a minute and let us know what issues are important to you in Lake Travis. That is not political advertising. Next one. Uh, Lake Travis Citizens Council, the more Texans know about water resources, the more likely they are to conserve. That's not political advertising. Then you go to the, let's go to the bottom one. Support Lakeway Proposition 1, a vote for Proposition 1 supports better recreation facilities for all Lakeway children. That's political advertising. One of the tests is that it has that magic word, support. And so to have a common sense solution to dealing with this other ad, Lake Travis Citizens Council vote today, do you know there is a proposition on the ballot to lengthen terms of your local officials, question mark? We passed a rule. And the rule said, in light of all the facts and circumstances within 30 days of election, if that ad is capable of no other reasonable interpretation, then it's political advertising. Well, that ad doesn't even say which way to vote. It just says go vote. That's not political advertising, and that does not fall within the scope of our rule. But it's an example of how we pass a rule that says within 30 days of the election, if you're subject to no other reasonable interpretation, then it would be political advertising. You know, Darth Vader music, the candidate, stop them from taking your rights, that sort of thing. Uh, but if not, it's okay. And the report we got was that the Texas Ethics Commission has passed a dark money rule to, to uh, you know, make more disclosure. No, we didn't. It just clarified something that the Lake, Citizens, Lake Travis Citizens Council brought to us and is frankly a very common sense way of dealing with the problem. So, 
Now you know what political advertising is and not. <laughs> well, I would like to thank all the panelists for coming today. I'd like to thank all of you for coming today. If you have any questions uh, for us after the fact, I think we'll stick around for a couple of minutes uh, before we too join you outside. So thanks very much and hope you're having a great afternoon.